Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Teresa Vu, more commonly known as Tivu. She is the Senior Vice President of Engineering at Xander, an innovative ad tech platform, and she's also a rapper in the band Magnetic North. Now, this was an incredibly fun interview for me, and I'm not sure if it was because Tivu is also Vietnamese or also went to Cal, but really, it's just because she's awesome. <laughs> Professionally, Tivu is a successful engineer and also musically a rapper. And in this episode, you'll hear Tivu's family story of coming over from Vietnam and how their roots were planted and really the start of her engineering and musical interests. I loved how our conversation centered around growth. And we talked about her boss at AppNexus and how he hired her because he, quote, liked the way she failed. And we talk about what she likes and fears about writing rap lyrics and also what graceful degradation is in programming and in life. Please enjoy this awesome interview with the best Vietnamese engineer rapper, Tivu. Hi, Tivu. Welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining the show. I'm so excited to have you on. I, actually, I told my mom, I have this engineering rapper on my show today. And she says, a what? <laughs> <laughs> so we have a lot to unpack in that. But first off, I'd like to one, thank you. And second, thank Avi Lissac for the introduction. And I remember because Avi's been a friend for almost 20 years. And he knows that the show is, means a lot to me. And when I asked him just certain profiles that he is inspired by or motivated by, your name had come up. And when he told me your background, I was just blown away. I said, wait, she does what? And she's also like a Cal alum. So I was so, so excited to have you on the show. So thank you to Avi. Thanks, Avi. You've heard the show, but generally I like to hear about your path to where you are. And so you're a really successful engineer. You sold part of the business to AT&T and we'll talk about that. But separately, you also are a rapper, which is really quite extraordinary because I don't know that many musicians who are engineers. But before we get into that professionally and then also personally with your interests, can we rewind your highlight reel and just really start with where you grew up? So I grew up in Portland, Oregon. My parents came from Vietnam. They came as refugees after the war in 75. And we were one of those really lucky families where most of the entire family made it over. So I grew up in a huge household of 11 aunts and uncles on my father's side, 11 aunts and uncles on my mother's side, both sets of grandparents. When you get the whole family tree to be able to come over as a refugee, you got really lucky stars shining down on you. So I grew up in Portland in a very strong family community. I'll also kind of add that my grandfather was so inspired by the families that sponsored our family. And it was a church that sponsored us. So 
he was so inspired that he went into biblical studies himself and became a reverend and started the first Vietnamese community church in Portland, Oregon. I mean, I think growing up in that environment where we not only had a strong family community, but like a greater community was also, I think, like a big learning process for me in terms of how to always think of community first. So that was a big part of my childhood. You're also Vietnamese, right? I am. And similarly, so my mom is the oldest of 12, and I have a lot of aunties and uncles. And unfortunately, we weren't able to bring the whole family here, but two uncles are still in Vietnam, and the rest of them are all here. And so definitely a lot of big family celebrations during the holidays and on pretty much every weekend. (laughs) And then so how old were you when you came over here? I was born in the States. I was actually the first born of my generation in the States, which if you're familiar with it, kind of comes with these like really crazy expectations. My aunts and uncles and parents would never say it to me directly. But when you sit at the kids table and you can hear stuff like, oh, she can be president one day. Her English accent is perfect. We're going to pool all the family money together and put her through the best private schools. And it was like a very steady diet of great expectations, being the firstborn, the first symbol of a new life in the U.S. I love that. And so speaking of schools, I think you went to the best school on the planet. But can you talk about where you went and how do you chose that university, Go Bears? It was absolutely the best school on the planet, Go Bears. I have to admit that I did not choose the school. I applied to many of the UC schools and I have a little bit of a rebellious streak, maybe because of all the high expectations foisted upon me, but uh, I got accepted into UCLA and I kind of wanted to be further from home. So at this point, my family had relocated to the Bay and I wanted to go to UCLA and my parents were just like, that's ridiculous. Berkeley is by far the better school. Go to Berkeley. And they convinced me towards it. And I reluctantly signed the acceptance form. And for me, was regretful at first, but one month in, I was like, oh man, this is absolutely the right school for me. Just the liberalness. I think the folks that were there, I just bonded so much with all of my classmates. I wouldn't have traded that education away for the world. And I'm kind of glad they pressured me into it because- I love that. Don't make decisions purely out of rebellion, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) It's so funny because I actually faced the same thing. I only applied to the UCs. And then for me, it was just UCLA or UC Berkeley as a choice. But I loved Berkeley's campus so much, in part just because it, I think it at the time had the most like Nobel Prize professors. But then also you go on campus and you feel the energy of Sproul Plaza. And I just found that to be so magnetic. And so how did you know what major you wanted to focus on? Because that really set your career path up. So I'd love to hear if you knew that you wanted to be an engineering major from day one. Oh my gosh, no, this was probably one of the most existential crises of my young life. And that kind of just tells you how privileged it was where choosing my major was like the hardest problem I had. But I came in undeclared in the letters and science field. And I think from a very young age, I knew that I loved music and art and being creative. And my father's an engineer, or he was before he retired, and my mother as well. So both of them had a lot of reasons to believe that this was a financially stable, very no, I think financially stable is it like a very good financially stable career. And this notion of being a musician or being a writer struck the fear of God in my dad's heart. And I think made all the more real by the fact that his brothers and sisters are all musicians. So in Vietnam, they made a living being musicians. They played at nightclubs. And then when they came here to the US, 
they tried to do the same within the Vietnamese community, but there was just no money to be made there. There was no stability. And he felt like he had to kind of take care of the whole family because of this failed like artistry kind of thing. So when he saw that I had the gene too, he was really, really worried that I would follow the same path. And I think it was grounded in a lot of reality for him at that time, just, just seeing his family members struggle with it. So we had this real clash of financially stable career or what I wanted to do was actually major in English. You know, the three careers that you could pick from in this case, doctor, lawyer, or engineer. So I dragged my feet on it for two years. Basically when you had to declare, I waited till the very last day to like hit that button, submit it. And I remember the great thing about like, I think Berkeley's letters and science and general education is you're really encouraged to take a whole wide swath of classes. So I not only took the engineering classes, but took comp lit and took rhetoric and all this stuff. And I remember my rhetoric teacher just writing this beautiful note to me saying, I really don't want you to go and major in computer science. I can tell you really don't love it. Please stay in English. Please stay in English. And she sent that to me the day before she knew the decision had to be made. Oh my God. <laughs> and of course I applied to the computer science program. I think what ultimately drove that decision was just remembering the amount of sacrifice my family put in to get me here. And it didn't feel as clear as it does to me now, but at that time, it just felt like too much to say no to. So that was the major that I had picked. So then you go on to computer science. And once you graduated, what was your first job? I graduated in 2004 when everything had crashed, like, you know, that huge tech boom. So I actually got an internship at a level three telecommunications type company. And then I went to grad school almost immediately just because there wasn't a lot of like job opportunity at the time. So I went to Brown to get my master's degree with a focus in artificial intelligence this time. I guess I should say that for me, majoring in computer science, you know, at Berkeley, there's a really storied EECS program where you have to be hit a certain GPA level to get in. I actually did not hit that level. And so went to the cognitive science program, which a lot of folks kind of look down upon as, oh, these are just the failed computer science majors. And like, that was kind of the joke. But like, for me, it was actually really eye-opening because I loved the psychology courses and I loved the philosophy courses and I loved the artificial intelligence aspect of it. It was like the first time where I felt like I could relate to computer science because a lot of the classes I took in computer science before were very heavy on algorithms and theory. And I didn't feel like there was any human connection to it, but give me that cognitive science, that psychology. And I got really interested and it kind of gave me some hope that maybe artificial intelligence is like that combination of computer science and like humanity that I was kind of craving for with my art. So I went to Brown focusing on machine learning and artificial intelligence for my master's. That's amazing. There's a woman who I interviewed, her name's Jessa Jones, and she has a PhD in human genetics. And then funnily enough, she worked in that field, was a professor in biology, ended up being a stay-at-home mom for a while. And during that phase, kind of went crazy because she's at home with four kids. But long story short, her career pivoted because she was a stay-at-home mom. Something happened where one of her kids put an iPhone in a toilet. <laughs> she found it, smashed the toilet open. And then this career in micro-soldering was born because she now fixes kind of widget. She fixes iPhones and laptops, <laughs> which you're just like mind oh blown. Like, how in the world did that happen? And the crazy thing I is she that. says, given her scientific background, she says, women are really, really good in STEM. And the thing that you should try to unlock in women in particular is peopleifying 
their field. So whether it's science, technology, engineering. So the way that you're talking about CogSci is very similar. It's how do you peopleify the stuff that you're looking at? But I love that story. And it sounds similar to why you kind of went down that path. But you were a computer science major at Berkeley. And what were you doing musically during that time? Musically, I had been, do you remember the decal classes? Mm -hmm. So I had taken that hip hop decal class, which is, (laughs) you too. Oh, was Kevin teaching it at the time for you? I don't remember the name, but I remember taking the hip hop one because the Tupac one was just sold out. And the Tupac a- one was completely sold out. <laughs> so I couldn't do that one. But the hip hop one was kind of like the, okay, the cousin of it. And I actually thought it was fantastic. Same. So the hip hop one has a freestyling session after each class. You'd participate in these ciphers. And I made a lot of friends during these ciphers. And some of the friends that I made there are ones that I still make music with today. So Derek Khan, who's my partner at Magnetic North, I met at Berkeley as well. And we met at the hip hop class. So at that time, it was really still just fun for me. I kind of did it as a creative outlet, but I never really took it anywhere. And I was involved with a student group called SAS, the Southeast Asian Student Coalition. And so they put on this showcase. They wanted to raise some awareness around the Cambodian deportation crisis at the time. And they brought in all these like artists from out of state to perform, but they wanted to bring some local performers as well. So one of the student leaders had asked me if I wanted to perform and I had never performed before. I would freestyle in Sproul Plaza. I would kind of write my own music, but I asked Derek if he wanted to do a show with me because I needed someone to produce a beat. We made a song for the show and People really liked us to the point where we just kept getting more offers to do other shows. And it really snowballed into a lot of demand for shows in and around the area. And we really ran with it to the point that the money we were able to make from performing at shows around colleges could fund our album. And then we produced an album. So it was almost serendipitous a little bit to have Berkeley really kick off that musicality for me. It's funny because my parents are so excited. It's the best computer science school in the nation. And I go there and I take the hip hop decal and it really kicks off my music career too. So that's why Berkeley is the greatest school. It really is. But so then you graduate with a computer science degree. Did you ever think as you had the success musically and during undergrad to continue that path? Or how did you know to go to grad school then? Music was taking off, but it was still not enough to like live fully. Or for me, it wasn't even about the financials at the point. It was making my parents feel safe in my career choice and like that I would be able to be a good role model for like the rest of my cousins and siblings and take care of myself. I think it just stressed them out so much that like, I kind of knew that if I wanted to do music, I would have to do music and something else. So grad school was a pretty clear next step given the hiring environment at the time. In preparation for this interview, I consumed a few of your other speeches and interviews. And one of them, I loved your quote, as you told your parents that you wanted to be a rapper and they're like, great, then you be the best doctor rapper, engineer rapper or lawyer rapper you can be, which I just love. And it's so our parents, right? Like that is who they are. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I just love that so much. So then talk to me more about grad school. So then you go to grad school and how did you pick what you wanted to focus on? So I picked artificial intelligence because I realized I was really craving humanity or humanness in the technology work that I was doing. A lot of why I felt so alienated in my computer science classes was how academic and theoretical it felt. There was a lot of text on, let's figure out the runtimes of these algorithms, let's do these mathematical proofs. 
And I realized that the stuff that really made me curious, made me interested in digging and doing the work was like how it would affect humans, how it affects the way that we do things. And taking psychology classes or the cognitive science class or the philosophy classes actually gave me a sense of where technology did start to blend in a bit more. And I think artificial intelligence, particularly where technology kind of mimics the brain was super interesting to me because I kind of love exploring the idiosyncrasies of the human brain. I think humans are just really strange and fascinating. So of all the fields of computer science, I was like, this one is more up my alley than anything else. So then you have a graduate degree in computer science at Brown. What do you do after? What I did after was start looking for jobs in New York because if I was going to be the best doctor, lawyer, engineer, rapper I was going to be, I was going to be that in New York City, the birthplace of hip hop. <laughs> so Derek, the guy I'd been making music with, was also down to move to New York. And I started looking for tech jobs that seemed like it had this human feel to it. And I'm not sure if I would recommend this as a way to search for your career now, but as I was looking around, I was kind of like, hmm, the finance stuff doesn't quite seem like to have that human bent. Publishing, maybe. And then this headhunter found me and pointed me to this ad tech company called Right Media. And I didn't know anything of what ad tech was, but I remember going to the website and looking at the About the Team page. They had like a basketball team that played together every week. And I was like, okay, well, as long as there's some like humanness in how we interact and bond together, like that sounds interesting. Let's look into this. And at Right Media, when I interviewed with people there, there really was this community vibe that drew me in. So much so that during one of the interviews, the woman asked me like, hey, teach me something. That was the interview question. And I was all ready to kind of teach her something very safe, like how neural networks work, like kind of like what I learned in my master's program. But she just seemed so down and I kind of wanted to show a little bit of myself. So I taught her how to freestyle rap in the interview. And I thought she had a good time. I didn't know how it went. And then of course, my dad checks in on me after the interview. I was like, how'd it go? And I was like, it was good. I taught one of the interviewers how to freestyle rap and you could hear like a pin drop. He was like, oh God, she's never going to get hired. My daughter, she has two of the best degrees you can ask for. And she's going to shoot herself in the foot every single time. There goes number one daughter status. You're out the window. Totally. That belongs to my sister. She's a real doctor and not a doctor rapper. But they hired me. <laughs> I was going to say, do you have any feedback from that interview? Well, that interview, I think for me, it was like, I felt so good afterwards that I didn't care if they didn't hire me after. But the fact that they hired me after, it just told me that I was at the right place. And that was where actually I met Brian O'Kelly and a lot of the folks that came over to work at AppNexus for the first year. So I love that story. And it's going to be my favorite thing to share at bar parties whenever that happens again, <laughs> because I just love that story so much. So Speaking of AppNexus, one of my favorite stories is your interview at AppNexus. Can you tell me how that went just for our listeners? The interview process was pretty loose and informal. Like the team was very small at the time, maybe like six or seven people max. But I remember most this hour-long interview with Brian O'Kelly, who is the CEO of AppNexus. And he's like a really great developer in addition to being a great product visionary and like a founder of a company. And his interview process was giving me a real life problem that he was trying to solve and seeing how I thought through it. So the real life problem that he was struggling with is how to build a change data capture system. To try to put it into layman's terms, 
the ad tech world is all about how you can buy and sell advertisements like in real time as the ad is loading. So a lot of it requires low latency and very, very fast decision making. And so the inputs that feed into your decision need to get added in by the users into a database. So inputs like how much you want to spend, like what you want to target. And so you want to capture these inputs and feed them into the system as quickly as possible. So the problem he had was how to do this quickly and how to do this efficiently and without error, because there's a lot of dependencies in between the inputs. I remember as far as technical prowess went, I had never designed an application from the ground up before. I did my computer science homework. I could build you a nice chess game. I could do some neural networks in a very isolated environment and give you some good research data. But this whole idea of building a system that's used by real people that talks to other systems is totally beyond me. So I was just throwing anything out there that I could think of. I was saying, maybe you just need to have a database on each server. This runs on distributed systems. So there's many servers out there. And then I just kept throwing out these ideas that like, as someone who's more technical in the realm of distributed systems and application engineering now, I would like be kind of mortified. I can't believe I said that. But at the time, I had no idea how dumb it was. I could just read his face and his eyebrows would crinkle a little bit. And you could tell that he was just like, what the hell? And he would still just let you talk. Like he wouldn't interrupt. He would just let you freestyle. (laughs) He would just let me go. And every once in a while, he would say something like, well, that would cost quite a bit to do that. He would throw stuff out like that. And like, I would just keep going because I just didn't know how else to solve it. And I kept asking really dumb questions. And it was an hour of that. And if you ever meet the man, he has a face stone. The only face that is more scary is my mother's face of disappointment. And he comes real close. And that was like the interview. Oh, my goodness. A Vietnamese mom's face of judgment is my the scariest thing that I try to avoid my whole life. <laughs> So what's interesting is you then were on a panel with him after you got hired. And can you share what he said about that interview from his lens? So this was many years later. This might have been like eight, nine years later. We were on a panel and we were talking about hiring. And I was like the first engineer hired at the company. And so people were asking, what were you looking for in like your first few engineering hires? And I suddenly remembered the interview in full detail. And like, it just hit me how horrific it was. And so I asked Brian in front of all these people, because I just can't help myself. I was like, Brian, I bombed that technical interview. Like, why did you hire me? And he looked at me very thoughtfully and he tilts his head a little. And he says, I like the way that you failed. And that was it. And he didn't give any more color in the panel. We moved on to the next question. Period. Move on next. That moment really sat with me. And I was so curious about it. It was a while before I got a chance to kind of talk to him backstage, but it made me think a lot about actually the culture around failure that he built at the company. And when I talked to him after, I kind of asked a bit more, try to get more detail from him. I would have to say he likes kind of being mysterious and letting you figure stuff out yourself. So he didn't really give me a lot, but from what I could glean, it was like the undaunted way that I would just keep trying, even though he knew that I was like really struggling but that I just kept trying. And I think also like the fact that I was not afraid to kind of think really outside the box. I couldn't give myself this credit because I didn't even know what box to be in to think inside of it. This is such a new kind of field to me. It really gave me this sense of, it turned the way that I think about people and hiring upside down. 
we look for the right answers a lot. We look for the right answers. We look for the right attitude. And he was specifically looking for the right ways to fail. I love that so much. And so he loved the way you failed that. And you were, I think, employee number seven or eight at AppNexus. Can you share first what the company is for those who aren't familiar? And then really just kind of double clicking on that sector of what that business model is. AppNexus was an independent ad tech platform. We were bought by AT&T about two years ago and became rebranded as Xander, but still very much like the AppNexus product and platform is there. The industry is ad technology, which is an umbrella term for any software applications that involve any kind of transactions or data gathering when it comes to monetizing through advertising. The specific focus in ads that we did was real-time bidding. So Brian was actually the inventor of real-time bidding. And it's really hard to explain this in a nutshell, but I'll try my best. I think it's easiest to think about it in terms of how print ads started. So like, let's say you have this magazine, kids that are listening, what's a magazine? But like you had like a Vogue or something and people wanted to advertise in Vogue. They would basically sell ads based on the demographics of Vogue readership. So it'd be primarily female of this economic status between ages like this. You would buy that transaction. You would pay for those ads ahead of time and it'd be in the magazine. So when things pivoted over to digital being on the internet, it actually followed that model similarly, which is I will buy 100,000 impressions on Vogue.com and the ads will primarily be what we think the demographics are. So there are some real limitations to that kind of way of buying and selling ads. And some of them off the top is like, what if there are more than 100,000 views on Vogue? What do you do with the leftover inventory? Others is there's probably plenty of other people that might visit that aren't in that demographic pool and you're just missing them because you're kind of aggregating the users together. So there's this idea of if you could actually figure out what is the best ad to show at the moment in time, then you will have so much more information to utilize. Like if you know specifically more about the eyeball looking at that page and you knew like what websites they visited recently, what they've looked at recently, you could really tailor this ad to something that would actually cause a response from them. But to do that means that you are having a decision on what ad to show in the 50 to 100 milliseconds it would take to load an ad on the page. It's kind of crazy to think about doing all of that logic in the span of a few milliseconds. And that's kind of where the juiciness of the tech problem is. A lot of folks don't realize how technically complex ad tech is because so much of it happens behind the scenes. But to kind of give like a taste of it, you visit a website, you kind of load the page. And in that time that it's loading, there's a request sent out to an ad server that runs an auction to multiple buyers deciding how much they want to spend or pay on the ad. There's all this data gathering of like, what the user is interested in. There's all these security checks. There's these data privacy checks. There are things to make sure that there's not competitive conflicts. Like you don't want to serve a Pepsi ad next to a Coca-Cola ad, all this stuff in the span of 50 milliseconds. And it's for a technologist is some of the juiciest problems that you can find. So that was what we had focused on is building this platform to kind of make that technology easy for folks that don't otherwise have a tech team to build it. I am so glad I asked you that question because I actually think, one, I just understand it, but you did such a great job of giving that summary. So I'm curious, if I go to UC Berkeley's website and I see some advertisements, do they know based on my cash or cookies or all the technical words that I don't know very fluently and I'm butchering, I'm sure, 
that I go on Cal's website and they say, okay, Yin's profile based on her online activity, we know she's a wife, a mom, works in finance, lives in California. And in those 50 milliseconds, there's already things or options of what to potentially do, or does then Xander populate that within the 50 milliseconds? There's definitely a lot of stuff that's aggregated offline. So you probably exist as a user profile in a lot of different places. Facebook and Google are some of the biggest advertisers. So they probably have a profile of you, not with your name, but some numerical number that represents who you are and what you like. And it might have the sites that you frequent a lot, stuff that you've bought in the past. And it's all kind of condensed into like one chunk of data. So when you visit Berkeley's website, they might know it's you because they'll store that ID into your cookie or in these days, because cookies are becoming less and less viable, Facebook or Google will know because you logged in as yourself. So that data has been aggregated over time. And then what happens in real time is you as a person and the content of the website. So they'll send along the location where you're at, like the fact that you're on Berkeley's website. So like an academic website to buyers. And the buyers will have all these campaigns that are preset and ready to bid on you. So there might be campaigns that are looking for college educated women. And so this would like match that. They might be looking for, I mean, I'm looking at your beautifully designed room right now. They might be looking for like fantastic interior decorating interests and we'll kind of target against that. And that bidding decision is happening in real time in that there are decision engines that are taking in all of your profile and saying, I think this will be worth $3.47 for this view. Here's my bid. And that is all happening within like 50 to 100 milliseconds. That's incredible. Well, I remember speaking of the decor. So I'm sure somehow all my cookies knew that when I was pregnant, here's how you decorate a nursery. So this is now my office, but it's my son's former nursery. So that background is in a lot of newborn baby boy nursery backgrounds. And so that's where this came from. But along those same lines, the movie that just came out on Netflix that so many people are talking about is A Social Dilemma. Do you have any comments on that in terms of how the technology companies and advertisers already have a profile of you and really try to maximize your consumership? And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I think this was probably one of the biggest internal conflicts of working in this space is how much information was too much information or like, are we actually manipulating more than we are trying to help people make purchasing decisions in some kind of way, advertising is kind of about manipulation and is kind of about making you want things. So on a philosophical level, I think a part of me is being mindful of consumerism as someone who loves to consume things myself. It's kind of tough. What I will say that is, I'm really glad that documentary had come out because it just has brought a lot of awareness to people about what's going on behind the scenes so they can make more informed decisions. The truth is that we love our free Gmail and we love our free Google Calendar and we love the free social media apps. And if you enjoy like any kind of TV or content that takes millions of dollars to produce, they are ad supported. It's hard to see the world without some form of advertising monetization, but you should absolutely know what data you're giving up, why you're giving it up. I didn't realize this until I got into this industry, but you know those loyalty cards when you go shop at like Dwayne Reed or- Grocery store, drugstore. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's kind of the same deal. You get stuff on discount because they collect data from you that they will sell to other people to make more money from the data. 
the 20% off you get on the eggs actually brings them more money than the 20% off on the eggs. There's so much to unpack in that. And this is a smaller, short enough show. So I don't want to spend five hours doing this because I have a lot of stupid questions and I'm so intrigued by business and industry. But we haven't really touched on your wrapping side of the engineer wrapper profile. And so along the way, you mentioned in Berkeley that Magnetic North was still going strong and it continued on. But all along the way, as your career rose really at AppNexus and then also at Xander, what was happening with Magnetic North, your band? What was happening is we had linked up with a guy named Tayot Na, who's a great musician and community builder himself. And I would just say like, we just were all in the same wavelength of what we wanted to produce. And we also linked up with this amazing producer named Chucky Kim. And as we were performing shows, we kind of wrote new songs for these shows and they became the heart of an album that we released in 2011 called Homeward. What was crazy about it was like 2011, 2012 was probably some of the busiest times at Nexus. The engineering team I was on was still really small. We had pager duty and our system is 24-7, 365. So if anything broke, we had to go and like wake up at 4 a.m. and fix the system if need be. And that was when our scale had gone through the roof. We were at like 500,000 requests per second one month. A few months later, we were doing 2 million requests per second. And so our servers were falling over left and right. We weren't able to deal with the scale. And I basically hadn't been sleeping a lot. And it was just really crazy to think of recording and releasing an album around the same time. But I think the magic of that moment was that these songs just hit a wavelength in me that made it very easy to write to. And it became this nice break from the tech work. So we put together the album. I will have to give a ton of credit to my musical team here because if it weren't for them like really pushing me, project managing me to get stuff done on time, I probably wouldn't have. As much as the music just was very easy, it's impossible to do without a team behind you. So we released the album. And the US release was just, I think, amongst our fan base here, but it got picked up in Japan by a label called Goontrax and ended up doing really well in Japan to the surprise of us all. But they really love that kind of jazzy, jazz instrumental based hip hop. So we ended up going number two on the charts over there on their hip hop charts. So that was pretty fun. That's amazing. There's an article that profiled you in the Wall Street Journal. And it mentioned that it was such a popular album that your group actually wanted to tour. And then you actually had to unfortunately say no. Can you just talk about that a little bit? You're going for all like the sensitive spots. <laughs> I don't mean to. I just think it's so interesting. Yeah. They did want a tour. And I think outside from Goon Tracks, there was this opportunity to also do a few shows in Shanghai. So we were getting some looks from some companies in Asia. And at that time, I just felt like I could not step away from work that much. I was one of the core members of the engineering team. We had just signed this huge deal with Microsoft. It just felt impossible to step away from work, even though music had been a dream of mine for a very long time. And I'm also someone that I think really hates to disappoint my community as well. So I felt very torn between which community to disappoint, whether that's my engineering team or like my musician team who couldn't tour without me. You can't just go without one main member of the team. I'll have to say like, I didn't realize this back then, but when I look back on it now, I think there was something about music that always really terrified me committing fully to music that really terrified me. Maybe it was putting myself out there. Maybe it was how personal music is. And then worrying, code can fail and I wouldn't take it personal. 
my song is hated on, I would take it very personally. It was a real, I think, difference for me in terms of risk and reward. And I think when I look back on it, there was definitely a part of my decision not to tour because I was too scared to confront that I did not want to put myself out there like that. Of course, I had the really ready excuse of saying I was super busy at work to not do it. And it was a really hard time for the band. I think they were really disappointed about it, but they're really good guys and understood about my career. But it definitely was, I think, the beginning of a slowdown of music for me at that point. Interesting. So your boss had seen you perform as a rapper, and he then afterwards said, I want you to be your musical self all the time. What did he mean by that? And did you actually do that? So to give some context, this was when I first started to manage, start managing people. And I was a very bad manager to begin with. And I think I had a really hard time asserting myself. I would let my team pretty much walk all over me. And I didn't think I was technical enough to advise them not to do something. And I was just kind of like this meek wallflower of a manager at work. And I think my boss, Brian, had kind of seen that and had been encouraging me to kind of like own that I knew quite a bit and it wasn't getting through to me. And then we did a show at the Bitter End, a charity concert, and he, he came through and a lot of my coworkers came through. And after the show, he was just like, I was talking about confidence. I want whoever you are on stage to be the conference room version of you too. Like bring that persona to the conference room. And it was a very eye-opening moment to me because I didn't even realize that I was living these two personas until someone who saw both compartments was like, oh, who is this person on stage? And I think what I had realized then was because of my father's fear of the music career ruining my tech career, that the more I started succeeding at tech, the more I hid my music career because he had advised me that it made me seem like a flight risk. It made me seem like I was uncommitted to tech work. So you got to hide it. Otherwise, you won't get the promotion. You won't get the compensation. And so for Brian to point that out made me realize that he doesn't see it as a flight risk. He sees it as a bonus. And it was just like this slow decompartmentalizing of it, like where I just felt like I didn't have to hold back quite as much. So I would say like it was very organically happening after that versus all of a sudden I started wrapping like my tech product specs or something like that. <laughs> I love that. Well, now we'll, if it's okay with you, we'll, we'll transition to the questions I typically ask all my guests, starting with who or what inspires you? Recently, I've been really inspired by the US women's national soccer team. I just love that they could be the absolute best at their sport, at their field, and it's still not good enough for them, but that they want to actually bring social justice using their platform as well. Like, I kind of love that. It's like this achievement that is not metal based as much as it's about like the difference, the impact that you can make. And I love that they do it in a way that is uniquely themselves. I'm also really inspired by, actually, as I get older, like really inspired by my parents and my grandparents. My mom was an engineer before she retired, test engineer at Cisco Systems. And she rose all the way to the ranks of director there. And she was in the field 20 years before me. And I think I remember being younger and doing things like helping her correct her English on her performance reviews because she said that like she was worried people were discounting her intelligence because she had this broken English. And then I remember her kind of like talking about how like people still treat her as the secretary when she comes into these rooms and everything. And I think a lot about like how if she was born during my time, she'd probably be kicking ass as a CTO somewhere. But like, I think to get as far as she did, she was one of the first women to get the CCIE certification at Cisco. 
she's just a complete badass. I admire her a lot. My father too. I think his advice about sticking to computer science paid off for me. I kind of want to cap on this because I talk so much about my hate and fear of computer science. Once I started working in a startup and seeing how the tech could be applied to solving problems, it was over for me. I was like, oh, get me out of the realm of theoretical. This is really cool. And actually, I love technology now. It's something that I think if he hadn't kept pushing me towards, like he told me once, he just sensed that I was not doing it because of fear. And he just didn't want me to be afraid. He's like, you love technology, actually. When you were little, you would tinker with everything. So I didn't feel like I was pushing you into it. I just didn't know why you were so afraid of it. So really appreciate that from him as well. I love that. Well, I usually ask who or what inspires you. And then my next question is about mentors and role models. But it sounds like your parents are also in that category. So I'll move on to my next one, which is, what are you most proud of? And before I mention that, in case you don't mention it, I read that you have your album, but a few songs in karaoke books. And for me, I'm like, that's it. I made it. That for me would be like my most proudest achievement outside of my kids. But I'll ask you directly, what are you most proud of so far? Oh my gosh. We're very similar. The placing on the charts for us, like that's cool. But when it was in that laminated page of the karaoke book in Koreatown and it had soju spilled all over it and I was sandwiched between like Rihanna, (laughs) I was like, I'm done y'all. And like, of course, it was a real crappy arrangement on there. And I just loved the pieces. There was like a swan video in the background. I loved every bit of it. It was amazing. But what are you most proud of outside of making a karaoke book in K-Town? I definitely think it was surviving that 2011-2012 year where not only did we get those systems to scale, but releasing an album at the same time. And then kind of as a part of that, on the album, there was a song on there called New Love, which is the first love song I ever wrote. And I didn't mention this, but I'm queer. And so growing up in an extremely religious family was deeply closeted for (laughs) decades. And for me to feel comfortable enough to write a love song and not hide that it was a queer love song was, I think, a really proud moment for me because I had this almost reflexive way of filtering myself. And I worked really hard to kind of drop all the filters during this song. And I felt so good about it when I was done that this is so rare, but like I felt to myself, even if no one likes this song, even if this is the most hated song on the album and got like five views on YouTube, I would still love the shit out of this song. That's probably one of my proudest achievements. Yeah, Amazing. Well, double clicking on that a little bit, just given how I know you were raised and similar to mine, what was it like telling your family? It was terrifying. One of my uncles had come out when I was very young and it didn't go well. And I remember just how tough the family took it. And he never came around to our big family dinners anymore. And I think there was a real precedence for it not going well. And I I think for me, it's so funny in my family, you were actively discouraged from not dating until like a certain age. So it was very easy for me. Oh yeah, don't worry, mom. I'm not interested in boys. Little did she know. Ever. But (laughs) ever. Yeah. And then it got to the point where it's like, hey, you're 27 now. Are you sure? You can date now. You have a job. But I think for me, the coming out process was really influenced by finding out that my younger brother is queer as well. And it really felt like it wasn't just coming out for just me anymore, but two out of the three kids now are queer. It's time to talk about it. To their credit, actually, they took it really poorly initially, but they did a lot of self-work, especially around the religious beliefs of it. And 
are fully embracing of it now. It took a few years, but I feel so lucky that they put in that work. A lot of people wouldn't put in that work, but my dad said he had a lot of like conversations with God for a while before he could come to like some peace with it. So we talked about a few of your hardship moments and you already kind of mentioned the F word a few times. I don't ask anymore what your biggest failure is, but if you can talk about maybe your biggest or one of your biggest growth moments. I kind of mentioned earlier that like there was this great culture around failure at Nexus, And I, I think my other growth moment around failure was getting really informed about distributed systems. In distributed systems, the thing that's really cool about it is like there is this embracing of failure. Failure is an inevitable in distributed systems. And that's because you're using so much hardware and so many servers that frankly, a hard drive can fail. Your code can be perfect, but a hard drive can fail. A server can go down. More often than not, your code isn't perfect and things will break or the network will go down because this legit happened. A sea animal chewed through an underwire cable and like disconnected some wires between Singapore and one of our other data centers. Things will fail. And so you're taught this idea of graceful degradation, which is put in another way, it means how to fail gracefully in a distributed system. I can kind of get into the system design of it, but the core context is like, if one thing fails, you don't want the whole system to go down. If you're driving a car and your headlights fail, you don't want your whole car to go down. Or if you are surfing on Facebook and the ads part doesn't work, you don't want to like not have the newsfeed work. There's this sense of like, how do you make sure that one failure doesn't take down the whole system? How do you make sure that you stay partially up and still delivering? And the concept really stuck with me because I love the idea of failing gracefully. I think for me, like where I started to think about it was like, how do we as a human person or a system of humans, how do we fail gracefully? Like, what does it mean to fail gracefully as a human? And I started to think about it. And it just so happened that this one day I was attending a leadership meeting and someone had said something about, I had kind of mentioned some doomsday scenario that if we didn't invest in something, like something, something will break. And someone made this comment about like, their TV goes again, bringing doom and gloom to the whole world. And I got really triggered by it. There's some feedback there, but for some reason I got really triggered by it. And it sat in my brain for like five hours afterwards. So like every meeting afterwards, I was half there, but I was half also being real angry at this thing. I was emotionally hijacked by it. And then it hits me like, this is not failing gracefully. This is the entire system falling apart because someone said something that triggered me about like being a doom and gloom naysayer. And it kind of just made me realize that for me, failing gracefully is this idea of not letting myself be taken out by like small bumps in the road. I think that therapy is great for this because you get some awareness on like what emotionally hijacks you. So when it happens again, you have some distance between it and you can kind of put it away for like later on, or you get some space from it and realize it wasn't a big deal what that comment was. So I see graceful degradation for humans as just awareness around what hijacks you. I think the other thing that I've been thinking about with graceful degradation is the sense of your identity. I think with work, a lot of people tightly couple work and identity such that work failures will take them out completely. Something bad happens at work and then you become really isolated and cold to your family. You don't show up for your friends. You stop exercising. I also just kind of get the sense that to gracefully fail in the situation is to have your identity be beyond work. Let's not have it just be work. Let's have it be other things. So. I really love that concept. 
I think my flavor of it is probably different from everyone else, but I would just say like, what's your version of failing gracefully? I'm going to steal graceful degradation. I'm not going to rename the show Growth from Graceful Degradation because I think that's too many <laughs> letters, but it's pretty darn close. And I would say thank you for sharing that because I love the idea and I love the expression of emotional hijackings. I might steal that too. What's next for Tivu? After 12 years at AppNexus, now Xander, I officially put in my resignation. And for me, I'm going to take a year to focus on music, actually. Speaking of failures, I think I can see now that there was a real failure of faith in me not pursuing music with more dedication earlier. And I feel a lot more ready, I think, to fail in this realm. I'm not going to put all my identity eggs in one basket with one song anymore. I'm just going to like try to get the stuff out there and make music again. I'm kind of giving myself some dedicated time to focus on it. But truthfully, I love tech so much too. I'll definitely be back to work on some things later. But just right now, I, I want some dedicated time for music. I love that. I love that you can express your fear of sharing your personality in music. But at the same time, when you use the analogy of failing a code or that language not working, that you don't take it personally. So I'm curious to see your music writing after you get a bit more, I guess, more professional confidence, if you will. So I'm looking forward to both your album and whether it's your solo or Magnetic North. That's awesome. Well, Tivu, thank you so much for this conversation. I had a blast listening and I am going to do this one quickly to share with my mom that there are Vietnamese engineering rappers out there. They do exist. (laughs) Yes, they definitely do. Thank you so much. I appreciated not just the time and the questions and the care that you listened to this story, but also highlighting all these failures. Like, I don't know. I love it. Thank you. Thank you.